As we come to God's word this morning in 2 Peter, there are two words that I would like to embed in your mind this morning. The first one is the word dependency, and the second one is the word destination. That our dependency is upon God, and our destination is to God. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1. And would you cast your eyes back again to verse 5 where we picked up last week. And I want to again remind you of the seven words that the Apostle Peter has encouraged that we would make every effort to add to our faith, to, to make diligent practice of these particular things. And those things are virtue knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then in verse 8, Paul, or Peter rather, describes the, the two different paths that can be taken. And one is a path of effectiveness and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And the second one is one of blindness and nearsightedness. But it's that, that first path of effectiveness and fruitfulness that then Peter picks up and tracks with in verse 10. And it basically answers this question. How is it that there can be a reasonable confidence in Peter and in the life of believers that these seven words could ever become true in our lives? And it makes reference to God's work, God's divine realities that are invisible and secret to us, but so necessary and powerfully working in us, and it is God's calling and election. And so verse 10 says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, it would include, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. See, the only reason those, those seven words could ever be true of us is because of something that is, first of all, true in God. He is a God who calls and elects. And so Peter uses these words of, of tremendous hope and comfort that we can make our calling and election sure. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance. Okay, this is, this is the destination. An entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us help to grasp these words, please. And, and may your mercies be so very, very evident in us and multiplied to us as the Apostle Peter himself prayed over them at the beginning of this epistle. One of the most significant questions that one can ever ask about the Christian life that I ask all the time over and over again is how does it work? How do we get these seven words in our life. It's relatively easy to answer the question of, of what the Christian life looks like, and these seven words in our text are a very good example of what the Christian life looks like and answers the question, what does it look like to be a Christian? What, what, would, it, what would you expect to see in the person who calls themselves a Christian? Wouldn't you love to live with somebody who has these seven qualities? in increasing measure in their lives. Wouldn't you love to be their neighbor? Wouldn't you love to work with them? They are tremendous and wonderful qualities. But when you set out on those seven words 
and you begin to feel the weight of it. Perhaps you've done that this past week even as you've meditated, as Pastor Paul asked us to last week, meditate on those seven words and you begin to feel the weight and also sometimes feel all of the, the other things, the antonyms of those words, the, the opposite of those things which also powerfully work in us as our defaults and the things that so naturally come to us in the way that, that we think and the way that we talk and we, we feel not only the weight of them but we feel sometimes our failings in them to always look like this. Then these words of the Apostle Peter are words of tremendous comfort, a words of tremendous encouragement to us that answers the question of how is it that those seven words can ever be realized in us? And it is through a dependency, a dependency upon divine realities. Make your calling and election sure. There is something at work in the life of the believer called a calling and election. Those divine realities, unseen to us, but powerful instruments of God in our lives. They're not our instruments. Our, our instrument is our, 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 our exhortation to, to work out things like those seven words. But God's powerful instrument of calling and election is something that Peter calls us to attention to and our dependency upon. And they help us avoid two of the great pitfalls in the Christian life that I'm sure you've experienced over and over again. The first great pitfall is the one of pride, the one of Phariseeism, the one of, hey, look at me, I'm doing it. Yes, in fact, do look at me. That is a, a tremendous pitfall, and it is one of pride. And the other is one, another pitfall that we experience without these words of encouragement and hope of God's instruments at work in us is the one of despair. And we often feel that in our own souls that our, our tanks are empty and we're out of gas. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 85 describes his soul as a dried up wineskin. In other words, Lord, I'm, I'm empty. I got nothing left. And there are words of despair that we feel sometimes when we, we feel the weight and the responsibility of what it looks like to live as a Christian. And so I hope you can see that Peter's words are pastoral. It's a pastoral tone in his text and they're words of encouragement and they are words of great hope. The main point that I hope to get across this morning that I hope that will we'll stay with you. Again, focusing on the word dependency, as it goes along with the word destination. But what is it that we're depending upon to get to the de destination? And it is simply this, that our, our safe arrival into God's presence. And I, I hope your sights are on that. What a place of glory that will be. Our safe arrival in the kingdom of God, in, in an entrance into God's kingdom, is gained by a diligence that we must make every effort. We must practice these things. But that diligence is obtained through divine mercies. And those divine mercies are summed up by the words calling and election. As they work themselves out in the life and in the desires of the believer, that the reason that these words, these seven words can be true in us is because of something that is true in God. In other words, calling and election 
does not mean that we can simply float downstream and expect to be saved. I, I forget who it was, I read it somewhere, that only f dead fish float downstream. That's not what calling an election looks like in the life of a believer. In fact, it means exactly the opposite. It doesn't, doesn't give us permission just to, to belly up and, and go with wherever culture takes us because we're safe after all. It's exactly the opposite of what calling an election does. It, it, it's the very reason that the Christian can swim upstream, that, that can go against all of the defaults, that, that can practice the things that don't come naturally to us but lead to godliness. How can those things possibly be true and us and it's not something within ourselves ultimately it depends upon something in God and there are words of of tremendous hope and tremendous encouragement that by the grace and mercy of God that he has purposed something for us in eternity what a wonderful comfort that is praise the Lord for these wonderful mercies to us and the hope that that give us in that way Imagine if you were bound up in prison and you were wonderfully redeemed and, and a helicopter came over the prison and, and, and scooted you away and you were, you were on your way to freedom and you were going to see your family again and you're going to go back to life the way that, that it was. And you get, they, but they go out over the Pacific Ocean in the helicopter and they say, okay, get ready, we're going to throw you out. They say, well, what do you mean you're going to throw me out? We're over the Pacific Ocean. They say, well, you can swim, can't you? Well, of course I can swim, but we're in the Pacific Ocean. And they throw you in the Pacific Ocean and they say, you know what? We've got a wonderful party waiting for you. It's going to be really, really great. Just, you've got to get there. Imagine if that's what the Christian life was like. It's not like that at all. Thank the Lord. This text is a, a very helpful one because it t puts two very important things into the same text. And those important things are, first of all, human responsibility. Be all the more diligent, Peter says. And it puts those words though, the human responsibility, it puts them in the arms of calling and election. We can't have one without the other. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not obtained purely through the exhortation for us to do things. Just do, do, do. Manipulation of our, of our character and, and the weight and exhortation of always doing. And, and some of you perhaps have never experienced any other kind of religion except that exact thing. Only ever the weight of this is what you must do. But it leads to despair but nor is the kingdom of God obtained by a passive indifference to holiness. That's not what calling an election is like. Work, make, practice these things, add these things to your faith. And I hope you can see how ludicrous it would be to see, to think that these seven words could ever be attained by our own power and equally ludicrous to think that these things that Peter is talking about are not necessary at all. So 
why Paul could say in Ephesians chapter 2, not only that we're saved by grace, not by any works of our own that anybody would boast, but we're, we're saved by grace alone. And then in the very same breath goes on to say that we are saved to do works that God has prepared in advance for us to do in order that we would walk in them and live in them. You see how the two things go together. We're saved by grace, but we live by grace, and we will be brought to the end by grace. And it is a tremendous hope and a comfort in the life of the believer. I'm going to explain how this works, and I'm going to give some biblical examples of what it looks like when it is working. First of all, let me read verse 10 again. Verse 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Do you see that there is a human necessity there? And the human necessity is that we practice these things. But in the human necessity, there is a divine dependency on calling and election upon these invisible realities that God has purposed for us and prepared for us that they would be worked out in us. Paul says something very, very similar in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, work out your salvation. That's that same human responsibility, the same thing that, that Peter is talking about, that, that you must practice these things, put them into practice. Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in you to will and to purpose. That same dependency upon God is described there. And so Christians must evidence a faith that has works, but for those very works. We are very humbly dependent upon God's works, God's work in us, upon his grace and his mercy to us in this way, that he is the one who makes there to be something different about us, even as we are called to work and exhibit all of those differences in our life. How great is God? How great do we allow God to be? Do you ever put limits on the greatness of God? I, I found in my own Christian experience that I've, I've thought about these things an awful lot, and I've had to work through a lot of things. And one of the things that I come to in f trying to find the best path is, what is the path that allows God to be the greatest? I'm not sure that there's any, any pitfall in a path that would allow God to become greater in my own mind, in my own imagination, even if that greatness is beyond my comprehension, even if that greatness sometimes is at the expense of my own pride. When I've experienced a paradox in my life sometimes that there are times that in trouble and in suffering, I want God to be great I want God to be very, very great, and I want him to be full of an incomprehensible power because I'm in trouble. But when it comes to explaining how it is that I will persevere to the end, sometimes I'm tempted to feel insulted and perhaps even insulted in my dignity to accept my dependency upon God's great power for him 
to give to me the very things that I offer to him. God is great. Don't put limits on, on God's greatness. Calling and election are wonderful things. They are never given to us as a badge of pride. That is how the Pharisees wore them. And is why Jesus came to call Israel to repentance and to humility because they certainly were not working out and practicing the things that their calling election called them to. Calling an election is never given to give us a badge of pride. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. Calling an election are the greatest ways of waging war upon our pride, to humble ourselves before him and to cast ourselves upon him. And we need that kind of warfare upon our pride. And that's what the words calling and election do. Peter isn't, isn't um, appealing to human pride as he calls them to work these things out. Rather, he is calling them to see something that is at work within them and to humble themselves and to make those things sure in his lives. Proverbs 16.5 says, Arrogance in the heart is an abomination to God. Augustine wrote something very significant that people have been chewing on for hundreds of years. In the fourth century, Augustine wrote this. It was a prayer. And in the prayer, he prayed this, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Let me put that in plainer English. But please give to me whatever you command from me and command from me whatever you desire. You understand that, Lord? You can like, for example, in these seven words, this is what you command of me and you can command whatever gives you pleasure from me. And yet, Lord, please, the things that you command, would you give them to me? Over the centuries, many have taken great offense to this idea of dependency as if their safe arrival in glory was somehow purely a matter of their human responsibility. But it's, it's an exhortation to let God be great. Let him receive all of the glory for what we are, not only in the next life, but in this life as well. And the, the scriptures are full of examples of how this works, of how God calls us to so very, very much in this life. And yet then he, he gives us the power to do it. I work with Christina Gorley, who is a colleague who has a tremendous gift of saying things simply. In one of our staff devotions this week, Christina read from Colossians chapter three, I think it was, and she closed her Bible and she said, you know, God calls us to an awful lot. But she said, but God helps us with an awful lot. I don't have the gift of simplicity, I have the, the gift of making things complicated. So <laughs> I would add to that, that that in fact there is nothing that God calls us to absolutely nothing that God calls us to that God does not also help us with. Or where would we be left to ourselves? So the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter three, 
Now to him who is able, such significant words, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. Tremendous words of, of encouragement. What power is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about God's power. Uh, hope that God's power is at work within us. And when Paul preached the gospel, he told the Colossians this. He says, I, I struggle with all of his energy that works so powerfully within me. That's a good illustration of what, what the gospel life looks like, what the Christian life looks like. We're struggling. There's, there are fish that are indeed swimming upstream against the current. But how? with all of God's energy that so powerfully works within me. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you see that? There's there's that that same combination of, of we must present our bodies as living sacrifices. But how do we do that? Well, by the mercies of God by all the mercies of God that Paul has already expounded in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Those mercies are not just to be possessed and cherished and and put in a a nice treasure chest somewhere. They're to be the, the very instruments that make our bodies become a sacrifice of worship to God. Those are God's mercies. And in the mercies of God, God never grows tired. He never grows faint. Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator. He does not faint. He does not grow weary, (laughs) but he gives power to the faint. That's what Peter's talking about. Just, just Not just leaving us to our, our own resources, but appealing to this great hope that there can be something true in us I mean, in the Christian life because of something that is true in God. And that dependency is something that we gladly accept and offer to God as a form of our worship. The second point in the second verse, verse 11. Let me read verse 11 again. It's to, uh, regarding our destination. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Whose kingdom is that? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That divine dependency takes us to a destination, a destination that has a divine reception. These, again, are tremendous words of pastoral encouragement. All of the diligence, all of the working out of these things in our life, all of the dependence upon divine realities has a destination in sight, and Peter lifts our eyes to the end.
you have your eyes on the end, what a significant thing to be able to see the entrance. Christians live with their eyes on the end. In fact, if we couldn't see the end, we couldn't endure the present. Do you believe that you're going to a place of tremendous glory (laughs) that outweighs all of the sacrifice, all of the things that we put off, all of of the endurance, all of the the practicing, all of the, the patience, all of the dependency is with a destination. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 4, rather, 2 Timothy 4, 7, when he says this, I've, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is laid for me, he says. They're not, not maybe. Well, I, I hope so. And he said, no, he says, there is laid for me, not for somebody or for anybody, but he grasped it. In the personal sense, there is laid for me, there is a certainty in his heart that for me, there is a crown of righteousness that awaits me. The life of righteousness that has a crown of righteousness. So Peter also doesn't speak of the dependency, doesn't speak of of the necessity of these seven words being realized in our life without speaking of of the the end that it takes us to and the the Christian life that is, is lived with our eyes, not merely on our hands and on our feet, but of hands and feet working with our eyes on the end in order to help our hands and feet keep working. One of my favorite quotes on heaven, I I don't recall where I read it, it was so many years ago. I think it was an author with the last name of Murray and there's several Murrays that have written, I'm not sure which one it was, but it goes something like this, that, that when we get to heaven, there will be many surprises. Perhaps that'll be a little bit like church when, uh, when the virus is over. <laughs> many surprises about who's there. There will be many pr- surprises in heaven. The first surprise will be who is there? The second surprise will be those that are not there. But by far the greatest surprise of all will be that I am there, that I am there. The greatest surprise at all, but there is a destination. One of the happy little providences of the virus for me in the evenings where I've been trying to find things to do and determine to use my time well and, and at the end of it say, well, what have I done with it? Have I learned something new? Have I learned a new skill? I'm trying to learn how to bl- play guitar. I got all my hair cut off so I might not be able to play anymore, but uh, we'll, we'll, see how, we'll see how that goes. But every evening after exercising, I go into the basement, shut the door so my wife doesn't has to have to listen to me to play my guitar and sing. And I've been, every single week after practice, I've been bringing all of the music home from church and I'm learning to play all the hymns and songs that we play at church. And so a few weeks ago, or a few evenings ago, actually this week, I'm, I'm down in my basement playing my guitar, singing a song called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. 
And I began to think, what a, what a blessing this is. And I'm not, you know, sitting somewhere else and watching the news or listening to the internet. I, I'm, I'm mulling these words of these songs over in my heart, focusing on the chords, but at the same time, these words are getting rehearsed in my mind over and over again. There is a fountain filled with precious blood. And all of the, till all of the ransomed ones of God will be saved to sin no more. And then, of course, you, you sing it over and over and over. Saved to sin no more. I won't sing it for you, but saved to sin no more. Saved to sin no more. God bless Rita, Rita Bogart. In this past few hours, one of our own sisters in Christ has arrived at her destination. Saved to sin no more. The life of righteousness has a crown of righteousness. And Peter uses words in this verse that emphasize to his readers the greatness of Jesus and brings all of the titles that you can attribute to Jesus and puts them in one sentence. In other words, that he is not merely a, a weak shepherd that has a short staff and a frail rod. He is a very, very great shepherd. He is Lord of all things. He is savior to all of those that the Father gives him. He is the Christ. And what the word Christ means is that he is the anointed one to do all of God's works, the Messiah. And he possesses an eternal kingdom. All of these qualities of Jesus are why Peter can say that we will be richly rewarded with, not, not by us an entrance into the kingdom of God, but richly rewarded for us in the passive sense that we'll be richly rewarded for us by Christ, an entrance into an eternal kingdom. Imagine if you were rich. That's okay. It's not evil. You can imagine you're rich just for a moment. Don't just wish that you were rich. But imagine if you were rich and you used all of your earthly resources to bless a homecoming of a loved one. All Everything you had, you pulled out all of the stops and you did everything within your power and your richly resources to welcome that homecoming of a loved one. That would be quite a spectacle. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son where the father pulled out all of the stops for his son that came home and put on the very biggest spectacle that he could in the human understanding of what it looks like to welcome somebody home. And he f killed the fattened calf and put on a, a big party. And what the, what the older son saw that is very true what he saw is that the lavish reception far outstripped the worth of the works of the one for whom they were given. I think that'll be true of me. I think it'll be true of all of us. They will be richly rewarded, richly given to us an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And I think that that is something that is going to far outstrip the worth of our 
ability to keep these seven words, but it does not outstrip the worth of the works of Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Christ, who is the one we depend upon, the one that brings and exercises and implements all of the, all of the tools and instruments of God's purposes in us by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, breathing life into us. Then take what you would understand as a, as a human reception, lavishly, uh, a lavish human reception, and extrapolate, extrapolate to, to the divine, extrapolate to the heavenly. For somebody who is not rich in a worldly sense, but our, our Lord who is rich in every way, rich in power, rich in mercy, rich in dominion, rich in authority, and imagine that spectacle Imagine what, what that's going to look like for God to bring us in to the entrance to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Imagine what it's going to look like. No wonder Paul told, tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that it, that it is beyond comprehension for us to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. It is a tremendous hope and a tremendous encouragement. The words, or the story rather, of Joshua and Caleb were read very, very intentionally. I believe as a, a good glimpse, a good Old Testament story or illustration of what it looks like to make your calling and election sure. And there are a lot of different ways that, and stories that people use and, and tell to try to illustrate these profound realities that really are somewhat beyond our comprehension. I think the safest path is to use the stories of the Bible. The stories of the scripture, and they, they, they illustrate. Old Testament stories are so helpful in illustrating New Testament truth. And that is true of Joshua and Caleb. What does it look like to make your calling and election sure? Uh, Joshua and Caleb, among the 12 spies, were two of them who stood up in the congregation and said that we can do all that God has promised to do through us. Yes, there's giants in the land. Yes, by our own strength and by our own power. We're grasshoppers. It would be ludicrous to think that we could just walk in there and take the land from this people. But we're called people. We're an elect nation. God's hand is upon us. Didn't you see what he did for us in Egypt? Don't you know what glory he has already revealed to us? Do you know what the cloud and the fire is all about? Do you know what the presence of God in the camp is all about? There was something different about Joshua and Caleb that then, that then was, was, was very evident in their ability to live out the commands of God to understand the commands of God as promises of God. What was different about them is that they had eyes to see something that the other people didn't see, and they had ears to hear something that the other people didn't hear. That's what calling an election looks like. For people who know all of the history, yeah, Jesus was, was born, Jesus was died, Jesus was raised from the dead, and they, they know all of the history. In fact, they, they even believe all of the history. It doesn't, doesn't reflect something being worked out in them. But somebody who has eyes to see in the history of what God has done, eyes to see glory. That's what 
Joshua and Caleb saw in the history of their own nation. It was not merely history and telling her children, well, yeah, this is what God did to us and this is what happened and this is, these are the, the plagues and we crossed the Red Sea and that. It's, it's not merely history to them. It was a revelation of God and all of his glory and all of his power and all of his dominion and all of his faithfulness. And the commands of God to them were not merely commands to, that so many of the people grumbled against. They were, they were to Joshua and Caleb. They were heard not merely as commands, but as promises. This is what God's commands God will do. He will do this. And, and they urged the congregation, this is what God is capable of doing. And then, of course, the New Testament uses those very same stories of the people falling in the wilderness. As Peter gives a very slight reference to even here, that if you do these things, you will never fall of all of the bodies that fell in the wilderness because they did not make the calling and election sure. May God give us ears to hear his, his word as promises to us and eyes to see all that he has done through Christ as glory to us. I'd like to close with a prayer that I have not written, but I'd like to read this prayer in closing this morning as I believe that they are a helpful, thoughtful reflection in prayer on our dependency upon God and what dignity that brings to our soul, life, and faith. Oh, my Savior, help me. I'm slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I am in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me, Take the scales from my eyes. Grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, to gaze on thee, to sit like Mary at thy feet, lean like John on thy breast, appeal like Peter to thy love, count like Paul all things dumb. Give me increase and progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the creator. Let not faith cease from seeking thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Amen.